0: be understood apart from longing. Think about it. When we use the word hope, we almost use it interchangeably with wish. Or more often than not, we use it interchangeably with get. We don't hope for things. We get things. We, we don't even wait anymore. The season of Advent is so different for us because it encourages us to consider Waiting. To think about what it means to pause, to stop, to contemplate, to wrestle with, to anticipate. How simple is it for us to grab food as we drive home rather than prepare a meal? We can even pay someone to bring it in the year of our Lord 2021. How easy is it for us to buy things and pay for them later? We don't have to wait to watch television anymore, we just binge shows. And shows are formatted, formatted to play to our ability, or our inability rather, to wait. We don't even have to wait to get in front of our television to watch our favorite game. I was with a friend yesterday. He said, I cannot wait to watch the football game. And as we drove home from Houston, he did not wait. He watched it on his phone as I rode with him. We are not a waiting people. So we start the season of Advent. Believing people in Jesus. God's people cannot forget that we have not fully arrived. Our our anticipation of what God would do for us in this Messiah has been met but not fully met. We are there but we are not yet there. Our anticipation has not met its culmination. How many of us have ever heard in this town just to grasp the notion, the concept of waiting... How many of us have ever thought through what it means to want our spouse? You've used this phrase, I'm sure. I just cannot wait for my spouse to only work days. Anyone ever said that out loud? If we can move away from this crazy shift where he works from four to four or she works from six to six, if we could get to that, I cannot wait for that to take place. For those of us who are aligned our lives with Jesus, we stand in direct contradiction to those who don't. Because the entirety of our world is communicating what they believe about waiting and wanting. And we are to communicate something altogether different. When the world rushes, the people of God should wait. When they grieve without hope, we grieve with it. When they celebrate immediately, we contemplate of God's certainty waiting to celebrate. We are a people who are full of hope. Oh, Alan Noble from Oklahoma Baptist University says this, Christians do not have the privilege of hopelessness. We are not a hopeless people. There are things for us to celebrate as believers in Jesus, but we have not yet arrived at the celebration. We are thinking about what God will ultimately do to declare his great victory at the end and the culmination of things. So when we as a believing people wrestle with what it means to wait, I would ask us to think, think about this in light of these concepts. The hope of the world is Jesus. And the hope of the world is that Jesus has done these three things that are at work. He has destroyed the power of sin, wickedness, death, and hell. The hope of the world is that Jesus is currently destroying the pain of sin, wickedness, death, and hell. And we as believers hope that Jesus will eventually destroy the presence of sin, wickedness, death, and hell. Look, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open those to Isaiah chapter 10. Picking up with me in verse 33, also taking this into account. When I read, I'm going to read from 10.33 to 11 verse 9. There's a significant time bump from 34. You won't notice unless I give you that point of reference. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 33 look the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power and the tall trees will be cut down the high trees felled he is clearing the thicket of the forest with an axe and Lebanon with its majesty will fall then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge. And of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge. But what he sees with his eyes, he will not execute justice. But what he, by what he hears with his ears... But he will judge the poor righteously. And he will execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked. And with a command from his lips, righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together together. And a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. And a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. First thing that we see is that Jesus destroys the power of sin, wickedness, death, and hell. When we talk about the book of Isaiah, there are many commentators who have referred to it as our fifth gospel. Because it talks about and prophesies of the person of Jesus so often. It is taking us to what God will eventually do in this Messiah, this anticipated coming King. We see in verses 33 and 34, the Lord God of armies is going to chop branches with terrifying power and the tall trees will be cut down, the high trees felled. This is alluding to the kingdom of David. I'm not sure as to your familiarity with the story of David and his kingdom. The people of Israel wanted a king. God said, I'm your king. They said, that's cool, but we want a a real king. So could you give us a, a person to stand with us? God gives them Saul, even though Saul was a doofus. Just a tall doofus, but a doofus nonetheless. Saul becomes the king of Israel. Every now and then he would get something right. More often than not, he was wrong. Unfortunately, he's one of the better kings of Israel. They then get David, the king. If you're unfamiliar with the story of David, David's story is this. He has a father named Jesse. The prophet Samuel goes to ask for, to ask Jesse for who the new king of Israel would be. Jesse goes and gets his sons, Bo, Luke, Coy, and Vance. They cannot find the person who is supposed to be the king of Israel there. He goes down the line, keeps asking. God keeps saying, none of these are the king. You're judging them by what's on the outside, Samuel. I, I look at the heart there's a shepherd boy who's who is a son of Jesse, but he's not even important enough to be brought to the conversation. They go get him. He is the next king of Israel. This working shepherd, reflective of what God will eventually do in, in himself as the good shepherd. He builds a kingdom. He builds a kingdom through war, through through fierce victories. Eventually, his son Solomon takes over. King David is the best of these Old Testament kings. Solomon's the second best, but he has thousands of wives, and that throws things off. You will notice as you read through the Old Testament that you will have a split of the the kingdom of Israel and Judah. There are numerous kings who are horrible, the deals of the Jewish people bring in uh, various things from other lands. One of those being the trees of Lebanon. So you have this kingdom that is built by the Jewish people who have aligned themselves with foreign religions and foreign, and foreign people. And as they have done so, God begins to speak against that because the hearts of his, of his kingdom, the hearts of these politicians, because that's what they are, grow more and more Corrupt further and further away from him. And as they go further and further, God begins to deal. And God deals by saying, I'm going to chop this down. There is a reference in 33 and 34 to the idea of the trees and to the idea of Lebanon to let those of us who are readers of this Old Testament passage know that God does not like for us to take the idea of foreign religion and connect it with this worship of Yahweh. You get to verse 1. God has chopped all of it down. Wiped it all out. And he actually uses Assyria, another nation, to do it because God can do what he wants, whenever he wants, as he wants. When he chops this down, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. We're going to get a new king. There is something that is coming. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. He doesn't say that he's chopping it down to David. He goes further, chopping it to where there is almost nothing and pointing out in the passage that it is from the roots of this stump that you will eventually get life. God bringing this full circle. The idea of the tree, we could have called this series, Oh Christmas Tree, because Isaiah talks about trees all of the time. Very pro horticulture. In Isaiah 53, we see the example. In Isaiah tells us that from this root, the world will be healed. Israel has gotten away from from, from the King David. They've forgotten about all of this. And God is displaying to us here in this passage that he's going to heal the land and heal his people and heal those who would have faith in him through something that is absolutely unexpected. You read in Isaiah 53 that there's no beauty or there's no majesty about him. That there's nothing that you would look at and your eyes would see and find pleasurable about the person who is promised this eventual tree through which God will build his ultimate kingdom. But he will go on to say that he was wounded for our transgression, pierced for our iniquities. That God, that the healing, our healing came through his suffering. By his wounds we are healed. God is pointing out in this passage what he will do for us ultimately in Jesus as we look at the whole of Isaiah's teaching. You notice that God uses someone that everything about this scripture says is unlovable. That he's not attractive. That he is far that he he would look as if someone that you would not expect to be king reminding us of what god reminds us with in king david that god works in unexpected things and in unexpected ways this messiah would come and he would be the hope of the world god is using this future prophecy in isaiah to call those people to a current repentance but they don't repent things don't get better they get worse They have these terrible kings. Eventually those terrible kings give way to other lands. Those other lands overthrow the nation of Israel. They enter into this weird in-between time just to give you a sprint through the history of of the people of Israel. If you were a lucky Jewish person, you lived in Palestine. Most live in the outskirts of Iraq or Greece. False Jewish prophets were popping up every single place. God had promised to send a new Elijah, but that new Elijah had not shown up. These people had heard the stories of this Messiah, but they did not even smell the Messiah. There was no Messiah in sight. They were hopeless. God had promised to send him, but he wasn't there. They dealt with Persia. Then Alexander, who wasn't all that great to the Jewish people, shows up. When Alexander overthrew these people, these oppressed people, he executed men, he sold children into slavery. The kingdom of Alexander eventually splits. When he moves on, the Syrians come in, only to be over, outrun by the Maccabees. There's this intertestamental period. where These Jewish rebels and radicals overthrow this Syrian government. But they weren't really aligned with Yahweh. There was sorcery everywhere, spirit talk too. There was worship not only of Aphrodite and Apollo and Venus, these various gods of Greek myth, also the worship of Molech who is called Baal and Ishtar. The former kings of the people of Israel had become nothing more than legends. We are far past the days of the prophecies of Malachi, Isaiah, Haggai, any of these prophets that we would recognize. They were nothing but legends. The story of the Jewish people was a legend. It was almost a myth. Your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had not heard of, had not experienced anything of the, of the grandeur of the nation of Israel. The former kings were legends as well. If you were a Jewish working class person, you would go to work, you would tell someone that you were the grandson of David, that would, they would say, that's fine, start working again. A miserable existence. This great I am. Is nowhere to be found. And that people are longing for something. That is so far removed. That they don't even remember what it is. It's in that world. That the Messiah steps in. It's in that world where we align ourselves with the reading of Luke chapter 2. It's into that world that Jesus intervenes. It's into that world that the promise of 2 Samuel interrupts and reminds us that the kingdom of God will last forever. Because Jesus who will come and die in our place for those who trust him, has destroyed the pain of sin, wickedness, death, and hell by taking our sins upon himself. But it doesn't stop there. As you continue to read, you begin to see how this Jesus will function, how this Jesus will interact with his world. How this Jesus will treat those who are mistreated. How this Jesus will care where there is a lack of care in other places. How Jesus views the hatred and the oppression of his people. And the hatred and the oppression of people in general. The spirit of the Lord, verse 2 says, will rest upon him. And we see that Jesus is destroying in his presence the pain of sin, wickedness, death, and hell. The Spirit in the Bible, when you read through it, especially the Old Testament, he rarely rests. He's like a four-year-old. They never rest. They just go. As we look into this Old Testament, we see that the Spirit doesn't rest. He just swoops in, he swoops out. He shows up and helps the doofuses, like Saul. Then he leaves. He lays down on the prophets. He lays down on Saul for just a moment. The Spirit of the Lord is not someone who stays. He's not someone who rests in the Old Testament Scriptures. He stops, then he's gone. The Spirit of the Lord doesn't stay. This passage tells us that the Spirit will rest upon him. Whenever you read the Old Testament prophecies, especially Isaiah, you see that whoever is recording this, when, when they're writing it down, these words of Isaiah, these words of Jeremiah, when they're recounting these things, they will write down numerous hits of the Prophets. The phrases they would say over and over that would tie back to something you would see eventually. Isaiah chapter 61, the same phrase pops up again, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. It's that Spirit of the Lord that rests upon him that leads Jesus to stand up in the temple and read this passage from Luke, where he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He's anointed me, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight of the blind. He and to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stands in the midst of a people who are longing, who are waiting, who have forgotten the importance of anticipation. And he says, I'm here and I represent all of these things. That the Spirit has rested on me so that this delivery could take place, so that we can see these things come to their fruition. A spirit of wisdom and understanding... A spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are all phrases that Isaiah has already used in the book of Isaiah, pointing out to us in chapter ten that Yahweh was the actually true was actually the true wisdom of the Assyrian nation that punished the Jewish people. They weren't smart enough to know what they were doing. That Yahweh was the counsel to the nation that we see in Israel in Isaiah chapter 8. That Yahweh is the power of Judah that is alluded to in chapter 3. That Yahweh, this Yahweh, this God in the flesh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In Jesus, these aspects of Yahweh have ears to hear. And they have have eyes that see. They have a heart that beats. They're not subject to anything less. Jesus stands there and says the Spirit of the Lord is right here in your midst. His delight, it will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. Displaying to us that this Messiah doesn't see things the way that we see them. Because he he has pure sight that he would not deal with things subjectively the way that we would deal with them because he would deal with them purely and righteously he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land he he will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips harsh language to display the harsh views of God toward the mistreatment of others toward the mistreatment of his people, toward when our hearts are far from him the weirdest thing about the book of Isaiah and, and numerous prophets is you have people who are altogether claiming to worship after Yahweh, but nothing about their actual function says they worship Yahweh It's the idea of walking with this spirit, knowing that the spirit of the Lord is upon the person of Jesus and that when we look at the atrocities and broken things within our world that God says that he hates those things. That God wants us as his people to align with him. The purest heart we can find is to be people who pursue the person of Jesus. You actually see that in verses 4 and 5, or rather verse 5 where it says this to us at the end. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. This is incredibly personal language. Talking about the belt and the sash of this deliverer, of this Messiah. What God is saying to us is, as you look to me, as you look to him, this great deliverer, You should go where he goes. You should follow where he leads. My kids love sports. I'm 44 years old. I love to watch sports. Uh, They do play basketball and baseball and water polo. And in most sports that I'm familiar with, the latter being not one, you guard someone. And when you guard someone, you're told by your coach, Charlie played basketball two years ago, and the coach said, Don't watch the ball. Because the kid who has the ball can go around you with the ball. Don't watch his eyes. If you want to know where he's going, if you want to know what he's doing, watch his waist. He cannot go anywhere that his waist does not go. When you read here that righteousness is a belt around the hips of the Messiah, that faithfulness will be a belt around his waist, it is taking us to this visual. If we want to know what righteousness looks like, we can see that described in the person of Jesus. If we want to see what faithfulness looks like, let's follow after the actions of Jesus. If we want to know what God thinks about something, where do we see Jesus expressing thought about that thing? Because Jesus is God in the flesh on display. What am I supposed to do? That's a lot. You just said a lot of weird things. How am I supposed to respond to this? What am I supposed to do with all of this God talk? How am I supposed to be a change agent in any of this? Fleming Routledge says this, the church is not called to be a change agent. Why? Because God is the agent of change. The Lord of the cosmos has already wrought the great exchange in His cross and in His resurrection. And the life of the people by that mighty enterprise. The calling of the church is to place itself where God is already at work. So, Grace, where are we aligning with where God is at work? Where are we placing our lives in line with what God is actually doing? Because Jesus has delivered us from the power of sin, death, wickedness, and hell. And he is currently about destroying that, making all things new, making the world right. Jesus moving us towards the great culmination of what will take place when the Messiah comes again. We don't just have this weird faith that is tied to what has happened all together, tied together, pulled tightly is what God has done and what God will eventually do because Jesus is going to destroy the presence of sin, death, wickedness, and hell. You go there in chapter in verse 6 of Isaiah and it's a little bit odd. It says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with a goat Shepard's new plan at our house since he hoodwinked me into getting that dog (laughs) is to raise a lamb in the backyard of our suburb he has a nice senior adult in our neighborhood who is already making phone calls to the city council so that my child can have a goat in my very small backyard I have been told that we have to pin off the goat. They told me how big his space needed to be. I don't know how to do any of this. He just needs a space to live about the size of your garage. How's he going to live in there? Does the bicycles count? You build the protection from predators. When Isaiah says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb... And the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together. He's taking us to a place where this predatorial concept is removed. He's giving us this metaphorical language of returning to what we see in the book of Genesis. This Eden that's there. The culmination of all things, Jesus undoes all of that. Undoes the wickedness in all of us, wholly, completely. He's done that in the life of the believer, but the very concept of it will be gone. The cow and the bear, they'll graze. A child will lead them, it says. The cow and the bear, they'll graze, and their young ones will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit. Isaiah has just taken us in verse 8 back to the beginning. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into the snake's den. The whole thing went wrong when Eve believed the snake. And God is saying, I'm undoing all of that through this Messiah in your midst. I'm taking us to that. But we're not there yet. If in your heart you believe you're there, we're wrong. J.I. Packer says this, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon hope of a place with God, hope of glory, because uh, at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. God taking us to what he will ultimately do. We're not people who just look at a moment in history to see where God broke through. We're waiting, anxiously anticipating, hoping against hope for the return of Jesus. He will come and He will call His people home and He will make all things new. But we live in this everyday grind. The hardship of life, the difficulties of life, same thing, one day after the next. Every day ends in why? because that's how you spell day. Same fight, same frustrations. We live in this country music Chaos. Numb to the realities of the world around us and how it's being destroyed from every angle. Same struggles, same woes. Our neighbor's dog won't stop barking. Isn't there a promised hope? A friend pointed this out to me this week. The second coming of Jesus is mentioned way more in the Bible than the first. He gave me these sets. The second coming references outnumber the first by a factor of 8 to 1. There are 1,845 references to the second coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament, Christ's return is emphasized in no less than 17 books and New Testament authors speak of it 23 of the 27 books of the Bible. The New Testament mentions that his return is 7 out of every mentions the return of Jesus in 7 out of every 10 chapters. In other words, hear this. 1 out of every 30 verses in the New Testament tells us that Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself talked about his second coming 21 times. So if we are living as if we have arrived, as if this is all there is, We are missing the hope, the ultimate hope, the anticipated hope of God undoing all that is wrong and making all things new. We await His coming again. We await the coming of the King because we as God's people want to align our lives and our hearts with the fact that our King will reign in earth as it is in heaven. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I invite you to bow your heads. There is a possibility that Jesus, you have not trusted Him to undo the sin in you. The wickedness of those early kings is the same wickedness that is present in every one of us. We are going to do what we want to do for our own good, not considering the good of those who are around us. Our sin is a display of death, and death leads to hell, eternal separation from God. But God, in His great mercy, has invited you to know Him, to trust Him, To believe in Him. So if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, I'm going to be in the back right hand corner of the room. If you would like to follow up face to face, we can do that right here, right now. If you don't want to do that, that's okay. Follow up with us after worship. I think God's so much bigger than the corner of that room. We love to walk through what Scripture says about how sin leads to death. But Jesus is life. But I know most of your faces and I spend lots of my time with you. And I love you and I'm grateful to get to be the pastor, one of the pastors here. If you are a believer in Jesus, I would invite you to examine your own life and see how you are aligning with the hope of the Messiah. With what he is currently doing. What decisions are you making with your time? With your talent? With your treasures? What are you doing with your resources to say that I'm aligned with what God would have done in this world? Father, hope that it is not seen is not hope. Paul told us that because you told him to. And Father, over this body of believers who I have the privilege of being one of their shepherds, I pray that you will lead those who are in you but far from you for whatever reason. To align with what you would have them to do. And who you would have them to be. And how you would have them to do and be that. Father let us anticipate with expectancy and celebration. What you've done for us. Because Jesus we believe that you are alone. The hope of the world. Destroying the power of sin currently destroying the pain of sin and eventually removing your people from the presence of it. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. The true King who will last forever and forever and has invited us in.